Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. <clears throat> yeah, that's why you guys didn't respond. Good afternoon. I love that song. That song is from Psalm 46. Um, but those words also comes out of passages like our passage today in Luke chapter 12. Um, and I think it's a very timely message for us today, um, a lot of us individually, but definitely um, believers as a whole. But an unpleasant emotion caused by the belief that someone or something is dangerous, likely to cause pain or a threat. Abner, in his album titled The Beat Goes On, in an analysis of our culture, he properly states in this song with Kirk Kennedy that fear is the new faith, which is an interesting statement because the fear we have seen and oftentimes display is the result of a lack of faith. But would it be true to say that faith is the absence of fear? But before we say yes to that, remember that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And a properly placed and expressed fear is at the root of true faith. In streets, um, in these communities all over our nations, we hear this cry for survival. Um, medical facilities all over the nation, we have employees who've gone from heroes to villains. Vacations postponed, education delayed, family gatherings canceled, marriages ended in divorce. Believe it or not, many churches all over this great and free nation, their the church doors remain closed, the pews are empty, the pulpits still remain vacant. The common denominator and cause being fear. Not just fear, but an improperly placed and an inappropriately expressed fear. And why do I say it's improperly placed and inappropriately expressed? Well, because at the same time in these same communities, these same neighborhoods, Planned Parenthood is wide open for business. Walmart continues to stock the shelves. Dispensaries continue to remain open along with beer distributors to medicate and comfort the masses. Fear. One thing that we know how to do is to exercise fear, um, especially during the times when what we ought to be exercising is faith. So if fear was the faith, then I would agree that we live in a Christian nation. But since we fear everything but God and the things of God, then it's sad to say that we hardly live in a Christian nation at all. But I wanted to begin with this introduction so that you're confronted with this question that we're going to see in the text and it's, who do you fear and why? Um, it's not just a question that requires an answer in the negative, but it's also a question that requires an answer in the affirmative as well. Um, so we're going to open our Bibles to the gospel according to Luke, and we're going to prepare our hearts for the word of God. Um, and it's my prayer that this answer will be clear for all of us who are determined to follow Jesus no matter what. Um, the title of my sermon today is Fear Not, God Has Not Forgotten You. Um, Lord, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for another opportunity to, to preach and to proclaim what is true. Um, Lord, I pray that you will use me to do so, and I pray that your people will be edified and emboldened um, to live um, a life that uh, honors you and glorifies your name. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Again, our passage is in Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 12. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body, and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear, fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. And when they bring you before the synagogues, and the rulers and the authorities do not be anxious about what you should, um, what you about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
Believe it or not, these words came from the lips of Jesus nearly 2,000 years ago, um, and it still continues to speak to us today. Um, I think it speaks to us today with a level of relevance that today's paper could never capture, a level of relevance that can guarantee levels of comfort that politicians only promise, um, yet they fail to deliver every single time. In our passage, Jesus gives us practical, a practical lesson on the fear of the Lord, and he does so by giving a warning in verses 4 through 7, um, followed by an example of what it looks like to actually live this out in verses 8 through 12. So for those who are taking notes, I'm going to give you a real simple um, two, two sections, two headings that you can kind of look at this or, or note. In verses 4 through 7, we're going to look at the fear of the Lord in theory. Um, and in verses 8 through 12, we're going to look at the fear of the Lord in practice. Um, and it's vital to have the two because how many of us know what the Bible says about love? How many of us know about that? How many of us know that Jesus is Lord according to the scriptures? Do you know that God is sovereign? Well, all of this is nice unless you have a problem loving your neighbor, right? It's nice unless you have a problem submitting to the lordship of Jesus. Or if the sovereignty of God is something that causes you to question what God allows and what he brings into your life. And so it's nice to know biblical truth, but it's even better to put biblical truth to action. And so biblical truth in action is actually the natural result of faith. Um, therefore, in our text today, Jesus, the good teacher, warns and encourages his followers at the same time by placing before them this concept of the fear of the Lord. He gives examples of what it looks like in action, along with the means by which we're able to stand when we're tempted to place fear in the places and in the people that it should not be. So let's jump really quick just to verse one, just to pull the setting into focus again. Um, and we read in verse one, so many thousands of people gathered together that they were trampling one another. He began to say to his disciples first. Um, and so it's important to know that what Jesus is saying here in these verses here, these are um, th th this is a message that he's given particularly to the disciples as he pulls them to the side when they're among this crowd of people. He's speaking to his disciples, the 12 that he chose um, to go on mission with him as he's seeking to save the lost. Um, not just a friend, but he says to them, my friends. I thought that was interesting because we throw that word around. Um, Jesus didn't use it as a figure of speech. It wasn't the friends, how we look with social media, right? This friends list where I have over 3,000 people. Um, many of them don't know who I am. I don't know who they are. But he's expressing his heart towards him when he says it, my beloved brothers, my dear brothers. And so I had to stop when I was just studying this. I really didn't even get too far because just those first five words made me stop and, and just kind of think about what Jesus is expressing to him. And it, it puts you in a place of, of worship and, and it calls you to respond to what the text is saying. And so I just think about being a slave of God, being God's creature. Yes, we're at his service. He's the head of our life. Right. The universe and the fullness thereof is utterly dependent on him, created by him and for him. But he also calls you his friend. I just have to encourage you with this to get you to to look at it, because while we can sing with all confidence, behold our God at the same time, we can just as passionately sing what a friend we have in Jesus. Because of songs like that, we can even sing, I am a friend of God. Right. He calls me friend. We don't serve a God who is far from us, but a savior and a friend that sticks closer than a brother, a friend. Do you understand just a little bit of the blessedness to be called his friend? I think we could spend the rest of our lives trying to mind just these first five words, and we're never going to fully comprehend this friendship that God would have with a sinner like me. Some have thought about it and wrongly viewed this love to be reckless. But soon we'll see that his love for us is the complete opposite. It is thoughtful. It's attentive. And like a good friend, Jesus gives them insight in verse four. He warns them in verse five and then he affirms them in verses six and seven. So let's look at the rest of verse four. Do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. Now, why would Jesus have to warn the disciples of something like this? I think these are the verses that would do us much good if we would just take some time to actually meditate on what Jesus is communicating and why he had to. 
Because I think in our American context today, it's really impossible for us to comprehend what it was like to be a follower of Jesus in the first century. This is why we look up to men like Martin Luther, men like William Tyndale and Polycarp. We look to these countless believers that we read about in Fox's Book of Martyrs and the underground church in China, missionaries who are in these places where they are hostile to the Christian faith. Christians who had a stand for Christ when there was much more to fear than just being canceled. We're used to having all of these freedoms here. We can go to the marketplace with the gospel. We have a level of influence in the world. Everywhere you look, you can find a church. You'll see a cross, a Jesus fish, scripture references, a Christian flag. We can go door to door with the gospel. We can sell out arenas. We can go to seminary, all while striving to become president of the United States as a follower of Jesus. And so this is not the way that it would have been in the early church. They were living under Roman rule. They were a nation within a nation, a people who desired to follow God and not man, which presented a problem. It presented a problem then, um, and we better believe that it presents a problem for us today. The disciples of Jesus had much to fear. Remember, a few chapters ago, Jesus with his face set towards Jerusalem. Why? Jesus is on his way to die. And so being a follower of Jesus for them was much more than just wearing it on your shirt. Being a follower of Jesus meant that I'm not a follower of Caesar. You are making a statement. Following Jesus was to be an atheist in their eyes because it was offensive, because you were rejecting the pantheon of their gods. And you were saying that I'm looking to this man from Nazareth where nothing good comes from. And this man is the savior of the world. So the reason it was a problem is because Rome practiced many cruel and disgusting forms of punishment for rebels. Not only would they kill the body, but they would often torture you. And remember, the Romans are the ones who perfected this practice called crucifixion. They called the cross the infamous stake, the criminal wood, the most evil cross. Cicero de described crucifixion as the cruelest and most terrible punishment. Josephus called it the most pitiable of deaths. So can you imagine living in this nation of wicked rulers? You would see bodies hanging everywhere, dying from asphyxiation, from shock, heart failure, dehydration. And I just want to get this embedded in us so we can understand the, this, the contrast and the type of fear that they had versus the kind of fear that we have today. I just want you to understand the pressure for the, this temptation that we would have to fear men other than God. And as I was going through this, I started to think of the Romans road as they're in Rome. And when we think of the Romans road, I can guarantee you I can start these verses and you can finish them. Um, Romans chapter three, verse 23, for all have sinned and fallen short of, of Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is through Romans 5, 8, but God shows his love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ. Romans 10, 9 and 10, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one and is saved. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls in the name of the Lord Jesus will be saved. If you are ever in a position where you're witnessing to other people, we call this the Romans road to salvation. You might not know the right words to say, but you can memorize these verses or at least where they are and you can walk them through that and they can see their need for a savior in light of their sin. And so we say amen. But have you considered the Romans road for the disciples, the Romans road that Jesus had to walk? It would have been littered with bloody bodies. As you're entering Rome, this Romans road, you would see bodies hanging. And I can only imagine how many people they were crucifying when you would look and you would see utility poles as you're walking or driving down the road. Imagine that being a body hanging on the cross. Jesus says, fear not. Don't fear those who have the power to kill the body and do that. In the comedy, which is a drama with a happy ending of Pleiades, one slave laments, I know the cross will be my sepulcher or my tomb, my burial place. He says, that is where my forebearers are, my father, grandfathers, great-grandfathers, and great-great-grandfathers. 
This indicates that the slave would not be buried. And so what would happen to the body of the slave? Many times their body would be food for wild animals and vultures. And you would see this time and time again as a reminder not to steal as you're walking into the market because they would hang someone right there in front of Walmart where they stole from. And so keep this in mind as you're walking into the store and if you were to see a dead body hanging, a dead body hanging with pieces of his face missing because a vulture was eating at it. Don't you think that would make you second guess whether or not you wanted to steal from that store? Now imagine being a follower of Jesus. Wouldn't you want to second guess whether or not you wanted to follow this man that the authorities hated and wanted to see dead? And so we talk a good game. What if you had a gun to your head and we say, I wouldn't deny him, right? 2019 determined that was a lie. I think the COVID situation has not only proven that many of us would fold under pressure, but we would happily make excuses for it and we would even stand in judgment with the world against the body of Christ. If crucifixion was the penalty for following Jesus, would you be here today listening to me preach? And it's fair to ask if crucifixion was the penalty for following Jesus, would I be here even preaching this message today? So you can imagine the followers of Jesus had much to fear when it came to death. But Jesus says, don't fear Caesar. Don't fear the governing authorities who have power to kill and destroy the body. Why does he say that? Because after that, there is nothing more that they can do. While they can destroy your body, their power is limited to their life. The, the power they have is limited to the physical and so that also puts into perspective verses on apologetics. Even as we're charged to share the gospel of the cross, we are reminded that it's a cross to carry. While we're carrying this message that produces life, it's a message that can lead to our death. Before we get to the part where it says, be ready to give a defense for the hope that's in you, this is what it says in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Why not? Jeremiah 1.8, don't be afraid of them, for I am with you, declares the Lord. In a little while, we're going to see how verse 9 in Jeremiah 1 also applies to our text in the second heading. Um, Jesus is telling his disciples what we see time and time again in Scripture. Don't fear what they fear. They don't have God. They have reason to fear. We don't. Nor be in dread. Who are you that you are afraid of man who dies? Of the man, the son of man who is made like grass, grass withers away. You continually fear all the day the wrath of the oppressor when he sets himself to destroy. And where is the wrath of the oppressor? If the devil is limited in power, how much more his children? If the demon is restrained and limited in power, how much more those who are under their influence? So no, don't fear mortal men who will one day die. And for this reason, God mocks the wrath of the oppressor. Fearing man is an improperly placed and an inappropriately expressed fear. And I say that because there is one that we ought to fear. So look at me, um, look with me at verse uh, five. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who after he has killed has authority to cast into hell Yes, I tell you, fear him. And so we see an obvious shift here going from don't fear man. But then he says, I will warn you whom to fear. And just in case you didn't get it, he concludes, yes, I tell you to fear him. We might want to pay attention. What Jesus has to say now is far more serious than what came prior. All the detail that I gave you about crucifixion and all of that. This is far more serious than being mocked and even murdered more serious than anything we've experienced. You see, physical death is temporary, but spiritual death is forever. Physical death stops the moment you take your last, last breath, but spiritual death is a living hell for eternity. If we now inhale and exhale the grace and mercy of God, for those who will not inherit his kingdom will inhale and exhale the just wrath of a holy God. And trust me, it sounds far worse than I can even make it sound. It is far worse than I can even make it sound. And so what's the difference between the two? Because both God and man have the power to kill. They can both take a life. 
But the difference is God alone has authority that extends beyond the grave. James 4.12, there is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and destroy. Not just able to kill, but just in case the, la the language isn't strong enough, speaking of the soul, he has the power to destroy your soul in hell. And what do we read in the catechism? What is our only hope in life and death? What is it? Right. And it's in life and death. Therefore, God has power over both the living and the dead, so not even death can save you from his punishment. Well, what about these doomsday preppers? What about the tech geniuses who are in labs right now trying to merge with machines so that they can obtain eternal life? What about some of us? What about some of us who view our works as if it's a key into the kingdom of God? These are very important questions for us to consider. And we find the answer within the word of God. We see it here in Luke and we also see it in Revelation chapter 6. Verses 12 through 17, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The moon became like blood and the stars fell and the, st and, uh, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, call into the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand? The obvious answer is no one. When we think of the fear of the Lord, I'm afraid that we don't go far enough. I think sometimes we act like we're God's publicists. We try to clean it up, right? We want to rightly point to it as being reverence, which it is, right? We might want to have respect for the one who has given us breath. But this God who has given us breath not only has the power to give it to us, but he also has the power to take it away and destroy us. Not temporarily, but for eternity in a real hell under his full wrath. This is something to be terrified of. When you heard the gospel, which included the punishment for those who rejected the Savior, did it make you afraid? Maybe it caused you to see God as a tyrant. Did you glory in the fact that God is going to punish evil and fail to see that you fell in that same category and will be punished as well? Were you confused because you thought God knowing your heart was a good thing? And in the end, he would forgive everyone because he's just so recklessly loving. Well, I don't know about you, but I pictured myself burning in a real hell and I was afraid and I got saved every week that I got on the church bus. And so do you think respect is the only translation for fear? Imagine the terror of falling in the hands of God as a sinner. If the prophet would say, woe is me, I'm lost. I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Woe is me, there's something beyond this human experience about being in the presence of God. Seeing the Lord of hosts even makes the believer uncomfortable because we're completely naked and bare before God. Even the things that we didn't even know about are known to us before his presence. So clearly, apart from grace, a sinner would be destroyed. And to my fellow believers, apart from grace, we too would be destroyed. And so think about this. If hell doesn't exist, then Jesus doesn't have an argument here. If hell is not a real place. If hell doesn't exist, then throw away so many parables that Jesus gave. If hell doesn't exist, then how glorious is the cross really? If hell doesn't exist, then what is the vengeance of the Lord against those who murder little ones and cause his little ones to stumble? I don't know about you, but I agree with Jesus when he says, take heed. And he warns us to fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast you into hell. Yes, fear him. And so, yes, fear is reverence, but fear is also fear. It's kind of like when I go to the beach, 
a lot of times what I'll do is I'll walk into the water where in my peripherals I can't see the sand or anything anymore. All I can see is the waters and, it, and, it, and it's, it's, I'm in awe of what God has created, right? You have fun in these waves. You, 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 you try to surf these waves, you play in these waves, but you also understand that by its power you can be swept away. This is the way that I fear the Lord. So Jesus gives them insight in verse four. He warns them in verse five and he affirms them in verses six and seven. So let's look at verses six and seven. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you have more value than many sparrows. This right here, this is the key to why the believer has no reason to fear man. It's also the reason why we have no reason to fear the Lord in respect to condemnation. As Jesus is warning his disciples, he also comforts them by telling them that they are not forgotten by God. This is the key to fearlessness. This is the key to being bold and having zeal in this world that is not our own. Jesus will use this extreme example to illustrate God's love for us. But I'm thinking about it. I'm like, that's not really extreme because Jesus is the extreme example for God's love, right? That he would condescend, not count equality with God something to be grasped. He would leave his throne and be born in a dirty manger. He is God, but he would put on filthy human flesh, all to express God's love for his elect. And so here, we who are infinitely valuable in Christ are compared to five sparrows because they're so worthless. Five sparrows, the cost of two pennies. Compared to one sinner, the cost being the blood of the Son of God. One sinner, the cost 39 lashes. Two pennies, one sinner, the cost is a crown of thorns, nails in his hands and in his feet. Five sparrows for two pennies, the cost for one sinner, he who became sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For something man views so worthless, we read verses like Psalm 50, um, 11. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. Matthew 6, 26. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. In fact, in our text, in verse six, it says not one of them is forgotten before God. When you read verses about God's care for the birds of the air and the flowers of the field, what does it actually produce in your heart? Does it make you think? Jesus uses this example of the, of the sparrow just to show how valuable we are to God, that if he cares about what the world sees as worthless, how much more does he care about you? How much more would the father care about those that his son would regard as his friend? Jesus answers the very question in verse seven, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you're of more value than many sparrows. Yet we run to social media for validation. We constantly are pulling towards this desire to be known and heard, seen and validated to the point where we make ourselves look like fools for a like. We sell out for a heart and a few shares when God has already told you in the text that you have my attention. So if affirmation is what you're searching for, search no further than this text right here. The capacity of his knowledge and love is immeasurable, like a master carpenter who cares about every little detail, like a good doctor who knows his patient's health history well, like a good teacher who forms the lesson to the unique learning style of the student. Nothing is left to chance. Everything is calculated and accounted for. So how does it feel to know that you are known by God? Have you truly thought about what this means? Not just that he knows about you, but he knows you better than you know yourself. And he still calls you his friend. <laughs> he still loves us. Does this have an impact on the way that you view God's love? What about love for God? After reading this, I had to ask myself, do I even love God as much as he loves the worthless sparrow? Can you see how this ought to shape our approach to our love for our neighbors? I don't know about you, but I find comfort knowing that he knows me intimately. I don't even have hair, yet every hair of my head is numbered and known. He sees it even though I don't. 
If he knows all the hairs of our head, surely he knows our fears. The things that we wrestle with in the recesses of our heart. This is good to know because there's a promise in verse 12. I promise we're going to get there. In these first four verses, we're given insight, warnings, and affirmation. Here we learn a very helpful lesson for the times that we're living in. Knowledge of our value in the eyes of God will drive away the fear of man. Why? Because we are not forgotten by God. And we also know that our enemies are not forgotten by God either. And he's the one who has the power to cast someone into hell. Now, all of this sounds good, right? This is all good to know. This is affirming the hair. But what does it look like in real life? What does it look like when the disciples are going to face opposition to those who are in power? What does this look like when we're accused of being a follower of Jesus today? So we move from the fear of the Lord in theory, and now we're going to look at the fear of the Lord in practice. And this is going to be also the application of our text. Verses 8 and 9, we have this first example. Um, and I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. So point number one of application, <clears throat> what it looks like to have the fear of the Lord in practice is the fear of the Lord in practice is manifested in the public recognition and confession of Jesus as the Messiah. Doesn't it make sense for the fear of the Lord to lead to acknowledgement of him? In other words, doesn't fear imply acknowledgement of the one in whom you fear? I can guarantee you those who fear Caesar had no problem acknowledging Caesar publicly. When King, King Nebuchadnezzar told everyone to bow down, was it not fear that led everyone to bow publicly? And that was to pledge their allegiance to the king through public acknowledgement. Does it not follow that those who would fear the Lord would do the same? And this is not speaking, obviously, of this private, personal relationship between God and yourself. It's not speaking of this non-confrontational, like a spineless nod to the Savior, but a bold and public profession that Jesus is Lord, that Jesus is King, and he reigns in heaven and on earth when? When does Jesus reign? Right now. That's what it means to publicly proclaim Christ. This is not speaking of a personal relationship. Um, a great example of this can be found in Acts chapter 4 when Peter and John stood before the council. After they were arrested, they were surrounded by rulers, the scribes, and the high priest. And they were questioned about the power in which they performed these miracles. And Peter responds in Acts 4 verses 8 through 12. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders... If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter could have remained quiet. Peter could have lied. He could have simply just said through Jesus, but he took it steps further. For the disciples, publicly acknowledging Jesus was a radical statement. Publicly acknowledging Jesus was bold. It was to draw a line in the sand, even if they were the only ones standing on that side. Peter openly proclaimed Christ crucified and resurrected and that he was still at work through his people and his work would not be stopped in the world, even if they were opposing them. That Jesus is the cornerstone, which speaks to his exalted position. His name is above all names, which is obviously offensive to the rulers of the day, that there's salvation in no other. He says this all in one response. So the fear of the Lord in practice is the acknowledgement of Christ as king, that Christ is Lord and he is resurrected and ascended. And since he has ascended, Jesus will also acknowledge you in heaven. Have no fear of these men. Why? Because Jesus claims you as his own. How is it that the peace of Christ can rule our hearts? 
because he claims you as his own. How is it that the believer can have full assurance? Not because you claim him, but because he claims you as his own. How is it that we can continue to smile and praise the Lord in the midst of people who would rather see us fall and bow the knee and maybe even die? Because there's a great reward awaiting those who acknowledge Christ. And that reward is the acknowledgement of Christ in heaven. Revelation 3.5, the one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. Along with the power to acknowledge you before his father and the angels, Jesus also has power to deny you in the presence of his father and the angels. This is a different Jesus. This is a different Jesus than John Legend in the musical Jesus Christ Superstar. That blasphemous portrait of a Jesus who would never turn you down and never deny anybody whatsoever. And the world doesn't see this as a denial of who Jesus is. They think this is actually Jesus. 1 John 2, 22 through 23. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so this confession or rejection of the Son is the single most important statement that you would ever make from your lips because your views about the son is representative of your relationship with the father as well. So the one who publicly confesses Jesus will be accepted by Jesus before the father and the one who denies him will be denied eternally, eternally rejected by him. And so point number one in application is the fear of the Lord in practice is manifested in a public recognition and confession of Jesus as the Messiah. Let's look at verse 10. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. I wasn't rushing to exegete this verse here, just to let you know. Point number two, the fear of the Lord in practice is evidenced by the submission to the Holy Spirit. What's more surprising to you guys about this verse? The fact that you can actually speak words and even blaspheme the Son of God and be forgiven, or that if you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're eternally condemned. This is a polarizing statement because this Bible is a book about how God is redeeming people for himself. But this ideal forgiveness gets thrown around as if it's not weighty. So much that we wrongly simplify sin as being equal before God. However, there are sins that are against the body that are placed at a higher category. There are sins that are an abomination to God. There are sins that lead to death. This particular sin is unforgivable. Jesus says everyone who speaks against the Son of Man will be forgiven. Um, let's just deal with that first. Let me, let me ask you guys, are you happy to know that there's forgiveness for everyone who has ever spoken a word or blasphemed the name of Jesus? How many of us done that? Some of us were atheists, right? Some of us were Mormons, considered Jesus the spirit brother of Satan. Some of us were Muslims and refused to consider Jesus the greatest and final prophet. When the prophets spoke of the Messiah and salvation, in which Jesus is the substance and mediator of. Some of us would even go so far as to call ourselves God when Jesus is God who became flesh so that we can obtain forgiveness through him. And haven't we seen this time and time again, this speaking words against the son, they were constantly opposing Jesus on his mission. The son of man came eating and drinking and they said, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners, John chapter 7, verse 12. And there was much muttering about him among the people, while some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading people astray. Words spoken against the Son of Man, the person in Daniel's vision who was given dominion, the person who was given an eternal kingdom by the Father, the person who will receive worship from all of mankind and will be served by people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. 
the son of man who will return in glory. And this son of man is the one who will dispatch his angels to have the wicked tossed into the lake of fire. Matthew 13, that's 41 through 43. In fact, according to John 5.22, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. Yet the son of man also has authority to forgive, and he does. While we were dead in our trespasses and sin, while we mocked him, while we were too cool to be associated with him, while we at one time rejected him, even misused his name to curse others or gain their favor, Christ died for us. And even now, he's interceding for you and me who once blasphemed him. Even now, we're being perfected through his spirit. This gives us some insight into the next part of the verse. But the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Which seems a bit much if the Holy Spirit is just this feeling, if the Holy Spirit is just an it. If it's just this force or this power that can be used at our own disposal to obtain these different carnal desires that we have. That view doesn't work for a number of reasons, and this is chief of those reasons. Matthew 12, 32, whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. That's strong. That begs the question, what does it mean to speak a word against the Spirit? What does it mean to blaspheme? You might want to know if it's unforgivable. Blasphemy is this outward expression that is either spoken, it's written, or it's typed. To speak profanely towards or to offer foolish prayers, to utter insults against or to, to speak ill or prejudice, to slander. And I want to say this doesn't sound like a one-time event, although it can be, but I think there's an ongoing nature in one who blasphemes the Spirit of God. I think it's evidenced in the one who is constantly resisting the Lord constantly resisting the Holy Spirit. Jesus, who was led by the Spirit of God and worked miracles through the Spirit, he's confronted in Luke eleven fifteen 15 and in Matthew 12. He's accused of working by the power of Beelzebub, who is the ruler of the demons. <laughs> so what is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? Mark says it very clearly in chapter 3, verse 30. They were saying he has an unclean spirit. Speaking of Jesus in the spirit by which he worked miracles, to give the glory of God and attribute his works to Satan. What greater insult is there than to refer to the spirit of God as the spirit of Satan? Jesus responds in, in Mark chapter 3. Um, I like going to the different gospels just to show how important it is. It's actually spoken of in every gospel. But he calls to them and he said to them in a parable. This is Mark 3, 23 through 26. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And if Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. It's an impossibility for the spirit of God to dwell within someone who is so opposed to his work that they will refer to him as Satan. Jesus says this kingdom in this house that it's divided, it will never stand. So for those who commit this unpardonable sin, you won't stand on the day of judgment because the spirit of the living God cannot dwell alongside of the spirit of Satan, who's at work in the sons of disobedience. So this particular sin is unforgivable. You've offended the spirit of grace. You're saved by grace. You've offended the means of regeneration. You've offended the means of sanctification. You've offended the one who illuminates the word of God. You've offended the one who places the confession of Christ on your lips. The one who enables repentance. The spirit who produces love for God. None of these things are possible without his spirit. It is God who has the power to cast us into hell. And what does that look like? Through his son, those who deny his son, his angels will be dispatched to toss those into the lake of fire. Those who commit the unpardonable sin against the spirit, those who resist his spirit will be cast into hell. So, so many people say, I see the divinity of the father all over scripture. Might even be convinced of the divinity of the son, but where does it say in the Bible that the Holy Spirit is God? I would submit to you that if all we have was this one verse in Luke chapter 12, it's more than sufficient. 
With all of this in mind, we've arrived at our final two verses of the text. Verse 11 and 12. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about who you... Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say, for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Point number three, the fear of the Lord in practice is accomplished through the indwelling Holy Spirit of God. Jesus prophesies here because he says, when they bring you, Jesus has given them a heads up that you will indeed face opposition, not just from your friends and your neighbor, but from those in the synagogues before these rulers facing those who are in places of authority, Jesus is saying to them, this will happen if you, one, don't fear man, two, if you acknowledge Christ as Lord publicly, and if you honor the Holy Spirit of God, you will in some way and at some point stand before the rulers of the day. This was not only a warning for those who followed Jesus then, this is a warning for us today if you're determined to follow Jesus when they hand you over. We see it in different ways today. Do you want to see it into the abortion? Do you believe the scripture when it says male and female, he created them? Or marriage is between a man and a woman? A woman? Or true justice can only be accomplished through the gospel, which is the only power that can change the evil hearts of men and women? Or when you even proclaim my body is the temple of the Lord and I will not hand it over to anyone? They will hand you over to the authorities that they worship into the hands of sinful men. We see this. The apostles faced this many times in Scripture. Um, Three times we see that the Apostle Paul was arrested. He spent five years in prison just awaiting trial. From prison, he wrote Philippians. He wrote Ephesians, Colossians. He wrote Philemon. But it wasn't just Paul. The same would happen to the other apostles as well. We see this in the book of Acts. Tradition says all of them died. All of them were martyred except for John. But this will happen. And Jesus says, when it does, don't be anxious about how you will defend yourself or what you should say, because the Holy Spirit in that very hour is going to give you the very words that you ought to say. The Holy Spirit will give us what we need the moment that we need it, the moment that it's necessary. We have to trust that. Remember, he knows us intimately. But fear causes us to panic. Fear causes us to jump to our own defense. But in faith, we're to wait on the Lord. And when we do, we're victorious over our enemies. How do we do this? We do this through prayer, by seeking God's will. We do this by prayer so that we can submit to God's will. Through prayer to speak the words of God. It is the spirit of God that gives us confirmation that we're not forgotten. And he is always there for us in our time of need. Jeremiah 1.9, then the Lord put out his hand and touched my mouth, and the Lord said to me, behold, I have put my words in your mouth. The Spirit of God will teach us what we ought to say. Have you guys ever experienced that before, having a conversation with somebody? I can remember talking to my friend, Hebrew Israelite, and I was selling insurance. I remember walking out of the office to have this conversation with him. In that conversation, I couldn't respond to everything that he was saying. He was saying so many things. Some things he said I never heard. But I heard in that conversation the best presentation of the gospel in my life. And it wasn't me who spoke it. I'm convinced that the Spirit used me in that moment. If you wait on the Lord, he will give you the words to say. After the apostles were arrested by the high priests and the Sadducees, they were thrown into a public prison. An angel released them so that they can continue to teach In Acts chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, this is what we read. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. What Jesus said would happen, happened. The apostles listened to the words of the Lord in the Gospel of Luke. 
And we're called to do the same. We're supposed to honor those who are in authority, but only when we're honoring Christ in doing so. If we are to speak words against them, let it be the Holy Spirit who speaks on our behalf. So let me just summarize this text for you guys in just one run-on sentence. Um, the fear of the Lord empowers us to proclaim Christ before men through the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives us what we need in our time of need, quieting our anxiety through the knowledge of his love for us. That's what this text is about. The fear of the Lord empowers us to proclaim Christ before men through the indwelling Holy Spirit who gives us what we need in our time of need, quieting our anxiety through the knowledge of his love for us. So church, fear not, God has not forgotten you. And so what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present nor things to come nor powers nor height nor depth nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word. Um, thank you for encouraging us. Um, thank you for giving us what we need in our time of need, and we're a needy people. We recognize that we need you. We live in a time that's much different than the times when you walked this earth, but the challenge is the same, to fear you above men. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you can help us do that. Help us to not shy back. Help us to lovingly and boldly profess Christ to the world that we might point them to a savior. Um, Lord, help us to live out these truths every single day. Um, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.